Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And once again, here with Sir Richard of the Hill. Yes, Hi, Richard. <laughs> I am. I am a sir. Somebody called me that the other day. Oh, did um, they? <laughs> I, 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 yes, sir. I thought, oh my God, who are they talking to? This gray hair stuff is fun. I'm just sort of kind of getting used to it. Bit, right. bit of salt and pepper on the top anyway, but I'm quite happy. Uh, in fact, it was funny the other day. We were having uh, family Easter sort of things. Susie, my wife, said to the kids, you know, and your dad's nearly 70, <laughs> and you could see their faces go, oh. And actually, I think maybe mine went, uh, as well. But, but uh, we're having a wonderful time. Still a few more years before that. So yep. here we are, okay. a podcast again, doing mm-hmm. wonderful things. We're traveling off to America, and we're talking to someone who's, who's not a therapist, uh, uh, today, but she is just doing work. I think she is. Uh, mm, it's yeah. it's only just in the categorizations. Now, tell us a bit more about who we're talking to today. Okay. Matt. Yes, we're going across to the San Francisco Bay Area to talk to Julie Lithcott Hames, who believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. Her work encompasses writing, speaking, teaching, mentoring, and activism. She's a New York best-selling author of How to Raise an Adult. And she holds a degree from Stanford Harvard Law. And she's a very clever woman. Yeah. I mean, she really does have uh, some fascinating sort of qualifications and background and talking there. But of course, she has a new book out. So, uh, what's the new book? Your Turn How to Be an Adult. Yeah, I really wanted. I really wanted how to be an adult because yeah, sometimes I wonder about what's going on. Sometimes I wonder about it with myself. Yeah. Your turn, beautiful. Mm. Anyway, really yeah. looking forward to talking to her. Uh, look, we can't uh, we can't let the the opportunity go by. Don't forget, folks, we have a really good book out there, <laughs> the Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. And we're getting some lovely responses from people Mm, saying, this is what I needed to know to help me understand why I do so-and-so. Talking uh, recently, of course, with with Lynn Lyons, talking about anxiety and what is it? And we give you that framework of understanding. So jump in on the book, jump in on the podcast we're doing about it. And of course, jump in on the scienceofpsychotherapy.net where you can access 1,000 hours of fabulous material. There's the, there's the plug. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's go across to the San Francisco Bay Area and talk to Julie. Julie, welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so good to meet you. Matthew and Richard, it's so great to travel across the Pacific Ocean to be with you. Yes, I, I feel like I feel like I'm there uh, and I've traveled without the jet lag. It's fantastic. So, Julie, as I've been um, looking through your uh, history of writing, uh, it's just so fascinating. And I thought also maybe we can touch on just a little bit of the history of the books that you've written, because um, there's a bit of a biography in that as well. Absolutely. So um, I just have to say hello, Australia. Uh, I've been to you a couple of times and I love I love you and I love who you are and I'm delighted to be here. Um, I am a black biracial American, 54 years old, and I came into this world wanting to help people. I think my work, I'm in my third career, but what unites everything is I have a deep an abiding interest in trying to ensure that all of us make it. Um, it's not a savior complex. It comes from a place of, I have been the outsider and I get physical pain at, at the 
thought of other people being outsiders. So I'm trying to do my tiny little part to help. My books are How to Raise an Adult on the Harm of Overparenting or what we call Helicopter Parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a parenting expert. I wrote that book because I was a university dean really fiercely advocating for the right of the 18 to 22-year-olds on my campus to have agency, to have a chance to try, maybe to fall, bounce back, and so on. That book is a response to the pop problem of helicopter parenting, but it's in furtherance of young people thriving. My second book is a memoir on being Black and biracial in white spaces in the United States and dealing with racism and microaggressions and feeling like that outsider and loathing myself despite being outwardly successful, ultimately coming to to self-love by working with a coach and a therapist and so on to really Mm. unpack all of those embedded uh, notions about my lack of worth that were coming from society that I believed and I really had to stare in the face of name tame it and move on. Um, I wrote a uh, uh, forward to the book writing memoir. I'm very interested in memoir and all of us telling the truth of our experience as much as we can bear it. So I've got a, a short uh, a, a book of writing prompts out with the San Francisco Writers Grotto. And my newest book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is a compassionate love letter. It's a love letter to anybody who fears They can't be an adult. That plaintive cry was first uttered by some millennials many years ago. And this is a response to that. I'm not critiquing them. I don't think it's the fault of an entire generation. For some reason, they don't feel prepared to step into this natural stage of life we all enter if we survive childhood. So your turn is me rooting for them. It's narrative voice is very close, very friendly, very frank, but fundamentally believing in their right uh, and ability to make it in this one wild and precious life. Mm, yeah. It's it's so interesting, all these things, uh, uh, Julian. And uh, we're fortunate to to have a fairly uh, international uh, sort of exposure experience. Yeah. My my sister actually uh, moved to to Italy or went went on a trip and never came home and married an Italian. Uh, so she's been there for for fifty. 60 years or some horrenda. <laughs> I don't tell her I told you that, that many years. But, um, uh, and, you know, so we've got relatives there. Uh, we've we've made some fantastic friends. I actually just had an email come in from a, a, a beautiful uh, psychiatrist who does recovery work with addicts in, in Egypt. And we've known each other now for, you know, 20 years or so. Uh, and then I do a lot of work in India. And what I'm just sort of getting at is painting that little picture of what I do find in America is that there, there is a particular version uh, and some of the some of the versions of the story are particularly harsh. Some are much less harsh. Certainly, the 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 black and biracial uh, story is very harsh. It's not terribly pleasant uh, here in, in Australia. We we still have a lot to do, but I think I think we've bitten the bullet of the fact that it all has to stop. Um, I think nice. we've kind of bitten that bullet. Mm-hmm. Now we're just trying to figure out how the hell we do it. So these aspects of uh, what to fight? What uh, what to fight for? Because I, I would like to say fight fight for is what I hear you're mm. talking about, rather than fighting against. Mm. This this feeling of waking up on the in the in the morning and going, I wonder what uh, this implicit sense of 
I mean, Aronson and Steele did talked about this in the in the mid nineties with their stereotype threat and how they showed that you could you could actually impact the way people's brains functioned. You could impact the the IQ results uh, of of uh, university students if you just gave them these sort of threat. This sort of aspect is this what you're uh, embracing, or is this what you? can not not embrace, just simply it's in your fibers, it's in your being. I guess it's both. It's in my fibers, and I also care to lean into it um, and embrace it. Look, Claude Steele is someone I know. I love the fact that oh, you just mentioned him. He's been a professor at Stanford for decades. Um, he's the person who labeled and named stereotype threat. When I was experiencing it as an adolescent and young adult, I hadn't yet read his work. Uh, I think he was in the process of really labeling that work as I was growing up. Um, but I am certainly exhibit A for stereotype threat, when we are members of groups about which negative stereotypes are held, um, we and we're reminded of the stereotype, we can really wither and underperform. It's like the stereotype becomes heaped upon us. And it's this weight that we really have to work hard to uh, release ourselves from. Um, and and yet I am also an example of the fact that it is possible by sitting with somebody I trusted and opening up and saying at 39, I hated being black as a child and young adult. I was afraid of black people because of what I'd learned from the media. And I just wanted to be what white people valued. I said those three very painful, deeply shameful things to my coach, uh, my professional coach, and thought I was the worst person on the planet, the only person who had ever felt that way. Um, I would come to learn that, no, that happens to people. Um, but in the instant I released it, it was like I released the vice grip that these stereotypes typical negative thoughts we're holding on my psyche. So to name it as to tame it is the shorthand. Yeah, and I yeah. learned that that's true. Literally the next day I was infused with this self-acceptance, self-love for myself, for my people, for brown people and black people more broadly. And so uh, my life has shown me that we can undo these implicit biases we have against ourselves yeah. when we're members of groups that have been targeted or marginalized. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Yeah. My daughter does a lot of work, uh, and she's doing a lot of work now in the domestic violence area, having a lot of impact. It's really she's actually educating magistrates, uh, which is a which is a really 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 good thing. And and it, it and it is this 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 the principle of it uh, of the impact of the imposition of the of the unfelt of the unknown weight. I mean, we almost go back to the to the principle uh, Plato's uh, allegory of the cave of the you know the the un the being chained unknowingly chained and living by the the shadow dance on the wall, and that that fundamental principle then applies almost everywhere with different levels of weight, with different levels of the nature of what's on the wall. So, as you say, that very, very unpleasant thing of, uh, of I feel embarrassed to be to be black, and we've seen these things with children as, as, as old as three and four with dolls and, um, you know, picking the, I, I relate to the black doll, but I want to be the white doll, and so many of these things, the blue eye, brown eye experiments yeah. of Jane Elliott. Uh, but then this this. I think the principle of the unseen chains 
permeate as a as a, a a generalized principle. And so, just rolling that round to this other talk that you're having about parenting, about being adults, about taking that mantle. That it's um, the it's to me. I keep looking at the wall in in Plato's cave. What is what is the shadow dance? What is the what are the puppeteers? Um, uh, deluding people into believing or, or or not having confidence in. So can we shift a little bit now to this? Yeah, this adult I love this. Wow. I love the segue you're made. I love the insight you have and and the and the connections you're making. Yeah, yeah. Less. So what's dancing on the wall for parents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in my society, in my community, I'm in Silicon Valley, Northern California, um, very similar in a lot of ways to Sydney and Melbourne. I don't know about Brisbane, but probably, I don't know, Perth, um, you know, there's this sense that uh, to be a good parent in this modern era is to micromanage one's child's every moment, that the measure of worth as a parent is to have done everything for our child. Trouble is, as you well know, in the field of psychotherapy, if a human is acting upon constantly, they can develop a learned helplessness. They, they learn that my actions don't lead to any outcomes. Life happens anyway. Life is happening to me, for me, around me. Their agency is diminished. Their resilience is diminished. Frankly, that's why I've written Your Turn, How to Be an Adult for those young adults who are chronologically adult, but nowhere near as capable or as confident in their own capacity as you were and I was at their age, because in the main, they've been overparented. And of course, parents didn't intend to harm their kids. They thought they were doing what they were supposed to, right? Mm -hmm. That's the misinformation. That's what's dancing on the wall. Do every little thing for your child and they'll be fine. No, do every little thing. You'll feel good about yourself because you feel accomplished. Your kid is helpless. Julie, historically, when did this start to happen? Because I've certainly heard from a lot of young adults that they don't feel like they're adults. So, right. so is there a point that where you know this micromanaging really kicked in? Yeah, well, you know, this is sort of a slow moving tidal wave. And right. we saw it hit the universities in the early 2000s. Uh, okay. The first kids to have the first play date in the United States, at least 1984, were the first university students to come to parents to come to college with kids. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) You can retape that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The first kids to have the first play date in 1984 were the first university students to come to university with parents who couldn't let go, who wanted to argue with a professor about a grade, who wanted to register their air quotes child for class, even though that child could be serving in the military, their child they thought needed help registering for class. So the infantilization of young adults was happening it was happening to children it carried over to university and then they they grew up and went on into the working world and now those people who were so badly overparented are in their late 30s and they are the millennial generation not all of them but it's these behaviors began when they were little which was the late 80s late 80s yeah yeah and and it's really difficult i think the um the 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 ease of this problem occurring, blurring across that line, because as a parent, you want your child to, to feel care, to feel loved, and you want your child to uh, exist in a framework of, of safety. Um, but it, it just, all these things, and I think particularly 
in 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 America. The the way it was happened in Italy, we could talk about later, was slightly different in the fact that it was um, it was a, a much more of a male dominant society, male privilege demand. And my 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 uh, sadly my uh, niece suicided in her early twenties because. The Sounds world was, it was not possible. But then in India, you have another thing going on with these, um, with these, uh, you're born into your life. Uh, yeah. So it's, um, and, and I could see this. And what's fascinating with the American story, which you're particularly familiar with, is that the American experiment was for the power of the individual. Uh, and it failed. It has, I mean, I, my my feeling is that it's 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 a failed experiment, and uh, and the, the, we're now returning to this idea of interpersonal and, and engagement and co-creating and so on and so forth. Uh, where, whereas your book is that you're you're nodding and shaking and and, and <laughs> let, I just let you go. <laughs> oh, Richard! First of all, I'm so sorry that your niece took oh, her life. That's yes, devastating. Very sorry. And I, yes. You know, we mustn't let those things go by in conversation without at least holding space for a moment. So I yes. just wanted to say I noticed. I and, I, and, I, and I say it uh, in my conversations to maintain the honor and, uh, and her presence. Right. right. Good for you. Um, so male-dominated Italy, caste-dominated India, the fascinating thing about America, I was starting to shake my head because America is really um, at that point of... Uh, are we going to make it or are we not? And uh, as a democracy and you've named, I thought you were going to say what's fascinating about America and the American experiment is its diversity. Instead, you said the power of the individual. And I smiled like, yes, absolutely. Both of those things. Um, The rugged individualist uh, is the myth of the American. And we have seen in this, you know, pandemic that people who take that up and really carry that as their shield and sword um, don't give a damn about anybody else. And that really is problematic when you have an existential threat. It's maddening. Our diversity is also theoretically something that makes us very unique. When the nations march at the Olympics, America's athletes clearly come from people from around the world. It's the most beautiful thing. It makes me cry every time I see it. And yet we are so polarized because of our differences. I think our diversity is an aspect of what's threatening our democracy because people, when everybody looks the same in Finland, let's say everyone can agree. Yes, we're all equal. We all care about each other. Everybody's pain is our pain in America. You know, the Asian pain is not felt by the white folks. The Latino pain is not felt by the black. Like we are these separate tribes and America's founding narrative tries to knit us together, but that founding narrative is getting erased and smudged. And so um, I don't know what question is embedded in this, but I wanted to just, uh, just that's that's what I thought in response to what you yeah. said. It, the, the question is just a discussion really, isn't it? We're, yeah. we're, we're yeah. finding ourselves in it's uh, curious. So yeah. and a, another aspect, um, so we've got individualism there. There's also, we've talked uh, quite a bit about um, safety culture. And when I think about parents wanting to micromanage their children, um, I think part of the motivation is because the world is, you know, so dangerous, we need to wrap them in cotton wool. Um, do you think there's some aspect there about us being overly careful Uh, Certainly parents would articulate it that way. Um, Here's my retort. Mm -hmm. If the world is less safe, 
which it really is not. Statistically, we are yeah, less violent, right? Yeah, Probably Stephen, we know that, right? Stephen Pink has done some stuff on right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, but even if it was, don't we need our kids to be stronger and more capable to face what awaits them outside of our homes? If things are less safe out there, we need to be raising warriors, not fragile, weak pieces of veal who will be slaughtered by what the world um, brings to them, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say as well, the most loving thing is not to parent for the protectiveness of today. Oh, I don't want you to catch your finger in the drawer. Oh, I don't want you to have a boo-boo at the playground. The most loving way to parent is to parent for tomorrow. Tomorrow meaning, metaphorically, the day when I will not be here to hold your hand, prevent your fall. The most loving thing is to teach you, my child, in age-appropriate ways at every stage, how to use good judgment, how to protect yourself, how to make good decisions, how to bounce back when you have been knocked down. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we've forgotten how to do. And that's really what animates my first book, How to Raise an Adult. Yeah, so this is resilience building, which we've had a number of conversations as well on this podcast about building resilience. And it does seem from those that we've spoken to that we're not very good at that, um, you know, in, in this generation. Well, it's hard to see your kid cry, fall, not win, be sad. And so we've decided I got to curate and caretake to make sure none of those things happen. But psychologically speaking, it's as if we're in the driver's side seat of their life and they're forever strapped into the car seat, um, just sort of taken places by us. So it's this short-term gain we achieve in the most lovingly intended way, but the long-term pain is the undermining of agency and resilience. I mean, yes, you mentioned resilience, but it's also, they don't have the skills if That's we've cut their meat throughout their childhood they yeah, can't they, don't know how to do they it. lack the manual dexterity and then they're embarrassed because they're out with people their own age or a job interview and they can't properly cut a piece of chicken yeah yeah, yeah. Well, resi- resilience is the skills is yeah. what i'm saying it's it's okay. more than there's certainly some temperament in there and there's some attachment uh, nature to it mm. but resilience is what i what i call responsibility which is response ability mm. and, uh, and and I had the most wonderful uh, uh, realization a little bit later in my life because we had a, a big tall tree or well, well, when when I'm six years seven years old it seems tall but I think it was probably uh, you know 30 feet 30 feet tall and uh, I often climb in that tree I loved climbing in that tree it was it was a fabulous tree a big old uh, uh, lots of branches and things uh, but my mother I don't know. I, she had just some sort of anal retentiveness about the lawn. And she would <laughs> rake the every time I was in that tree, she'd be out raking that lawn and there were no leaves on it. Um, and yeah. of course, she's she watching was, out for you. He was out there. She said, okay, he's probably going to fall, but I'll kind of just catch him. So we break as few bones as possible. But I yep. never, I was never given the, the the thing. Don't climb that tree. Be right. careful while you're in that tree. <laughs> Just yes. I thought my mother was an, an idiot <laughs> yeah. trying to rake yeah. the lawn. Isn't you know? that lovely? It's a lovely example. I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Matthew. It's a lovely right. example of how a parent can be present without harming. Yeah, create care. Be for the just in case. Yeah. Without exactly. ever letting exactly. you know that she didn't think you could do it. 
Yeah. And exactly. I never broke my arm, so well done. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I find fascinating is that in in popular culture, you know, we've got these movies, you know, I don't know, superheroes, I don't have anyone in, in particular, um, where, you know, the the individual, you know, is learns to be resilient through a struggle. You know, there's no mummy there holding hands and, you know, but, but these are the um, these are the sort of the superheroes of the, of the culture, and yet we're not seeing that reflected that aspect. Sorry, um, reflected in you know the, the culture of you know raising adults. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. Are we training are these kids living living vicariously the the power being, but remaining mm. the remaining the 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 less capable being. I don't know. It's like you sit back passively and you watch the superhero, you know, learn through adversity and, you know, overcome. And yet we don't do that in our own lives. I don't know, Julie, have you got any thoughts yeah. along those lines? No, absolutely. I was going to add simply that in literature, um, in English language literature, which is what I'm familiar with, often the hero, often the protagonist is an orphan child yeah. who's right. So without all of that, what do they make of themselves? And, you know, there's something to that. None of us is advocating for children to be orphans, but um, it is in the absence of tremendous caretaking in the, in, in, in the presence of the imperative to figure it out that we do. And then we feel the psychological boost. We get the buzz, the high of, I took care of business. I handled that. You know, there's a satisfaction that we feel psychologically. And I'm here's where I'm not pra I'm practicing psychology without a license. Like I'm a lawyer who became a university dean. I don't have a degree in this topic, but I know because I felt it right. I get a psychological hit when I accomplish something and it doesn't have to be. I won the biggest race in life. It's not. I, I had a challenge on my hand. I handled it. I feel good. Yep. Yes, I, I talk a lot about the the danger of the what I call the winner loser world. The uh, the the thing as in the sense of externally evaluated winning and losing, as different from what you were just talking about there. That internal uh, uh, mm. response of of succeeding of of achieving um, more of yourself, the most of yourself, uh, and th that has certainly been lost in cultures where external achievement um, is the only way that you can be valued and America has a great deal of that although they fight they keep fighting against it um, but um, and you get that interesting juxtaposition with a place like India where you you really close the parameters you, you minimize the parameters and you know you become the best of your cast uh, I'm not sure how how extraordinary you know the changes there my I have I have I have many difficult conversations with some of my Indian friends yeah. All right. So where do we want to take this? Um, so Julie, do you got, have you got some um, stories? Everyone loves a story um, about, you know, some transformational change that's happened with some young people turning into adults or... Yeah, absolutely. There's there are two guys that are coming to mind. So so let me just say, as a matter of craft, my new book, Your Turn, is part memoir, my experience growing up, lessons I learned the hard way that I'm not ashamed to put on the page. Some of those handy self help lists that publishers and media like, but then every chapter concludes with profiles of um, over thirty individuals I went and found. Just going back to this notion of um, um, how important it is that we all. Uh, undo the biases against us uh, 
that we all come to a place of knowing we matter. I'm an author that includes people from all walks of life in my self-help pages because I want every reader to know I had you in mind when I wrote this. So that's why I had to bring in the stories of lots of other people and two guys who come to mind um, in the relationships chapter. So, you know, we know that research shows it's the quality of our relationships at 50 that determines whether we live a long and healthy life more so than our cholesterol level at 50. And um, so I have a whole chapter called Start Talking to Strangers. Humans are key to your survival, trying to counteract that childhood imperative, don't talk to strangers, which is an overbroad, absurd rule. And in that chapter, I have two guys who are kind of juxtaposed. One is Akshay. He's uh, the child of Indian immigrants, um, high achieving academically, expected to go to med school, and he did a Hindu family. And when he's 22 and graduating from college, he comes to terms with the fact that he's gay and he lets his family know he's an identical twin, by the way. So he's got a twin brother doing the exact same thing at a different university, both pre-med and his parents won't accept it. And the long and short of it is he soldiers on, goes to med school, finds a med school that has a thriving queer community so he can begin to explore that identity um, in, in a way that's meaningful to him. And his parents reject it. For 10 years, they ask him, when are you going to marry a nice girl? They they just will not see him. And they become estranged. Okay, so I'm going to hold that out there. The other story is Joe, a white guy in Texas um, who uh, is, is, is really talented at the theater. He's a theater director. He studies it at SMU in Dallas. He goes out into the world um, to make his way um, in the arts. He goes to get his master's degree in theater. And his father's a corporate guy who refuses to see his son and as he is, refuses to value theater as a pursuit. And where these stories end up is Akshay at 32 finally reaches out to his parents and says, look, I'd love for you to know who I am. I'd love to know who you are. I don't know how much time we have left together on this planet, but I really, you know, and within hours, Akshay's parents were like, we love you. We accept you. Like they had in their 10 years of estrangement done the work. Joe at 32 invited him to come see his thesis on the stage, this wonderful family dynamic playing out on the stage that Joe directed. And his father said, this was amazing. This is great. But when are you going to get a real job? And Joe is delighted to be permanently estranged from his dad until his dad, if and when his dad comes around to accept him. And the reason these stories are in my book is I am rooting for Akshay and Joe. I am rooting for the individual to figure out who are you? What do you know to be true about yourself? What are you good at? What do you love? Where do you find belonging? Go in those directions and to heck with anyone who tries to stand in your way. Yeah. That, I mean, this, this beautiful thing of understanding that the, the, the nature of your individuality, of your, your uniqueness, its power is what uh, that uniqueness creates when it combines and integrates and engages with another uniqueness as different from an isolatedness. And, mm-hmm. and this, this was the era of um, uh, that I think flows through. If I isolate my child from the dangers, if I isolate them, uh, literally, as you say, helicopter. What's the what's the, uh, the 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 one that's even worse than that? They were they were saying the curling parent. Yes, the, the, who's running around with a broom? You know, right. micro and warming the ice. And yeah, warming the ice. You know, <laughs> yeah. just so yeah. we can move. And and the um, uh, 
this is this is such a powerful discussion, and uh, I'm and I would suggest that your 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 book is is like the um, is like the the breath that is blowing on the forest of of um, of all these stories that uh, wow. that you know take your take your book and um, you know what a, I, Matt and I we often talk we talk a lot about curiosity and possibility, yeah. and that every piece of information is a springboard. And I'm just hearing, you know, each page those stories. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting people to read those stories and not go, oh, I know it now. Wanting to, and I'm, want, I'm sure you're wanting it too. You know, I love that you're honing in on the stories. It really was the most joyful part of writing this book. I couldn't write it at first. I signed a contract to write it and failed for three years because I thought, who the hell am I to write a book telling other people how to live their entire adulthood? And then I realized I've had some years. I've had some experiences. I can be humble. I can be curious. I can be respectful of all walks of life, but I need to join other people um, into the telling, which I did. You know, you asked for a favorite story and... The one I should have told you about is Sean's story. Sean closes the book. Chapter 13 is just called Above All Else, Keep Going. I was invited to do a podcast in Australia with a guy named Sean. I said a parenting podcast. I said yes, because few men are in the parenting space. And I love Australia. I was like, great, I'm going to be on an Australia podcast. Here I am again. And we had a great convo. He was so mature and so wise and had such great insight. Really, you know, a very different podcast. And at the end, I said, forgive me, I don't mean to sound paternalistic, but how old are you? You sound so wise, but you must be like 30. He's like, I'm 23. Wow. Well, he had told me the story of having had a baby. He had a baby who was two. So that means he had the baby at 21. I said, Sean, okay, will you be in my, I need to interview you now for my book because I want the story of what it's like to discover at 21 that you and your partner are unexpectedly expecting. And you've got all of this wisdom now. So you're like, he closes out the book because they made that decision. Like, all right, life has thrown us this curveball. We're going to go figure that out. And we're going to be the best parents we can. And we're going to make our own way. And the language Sean uses is full of such delight about what he has learned from coming into fatherhood young, what he is learning from this lovely little boy, Oscar, having to stand up to his own dad, Sean's dad, who is an alcoholic, having to draw that boundary and say, dad, I grew up this way. I'm not letting my son be exposed to those behaviors. So you got two choices, stay as you are or get sober. If you're sober, you are welcome into my son's life. And his dad got sober for a while and then fell off the wagon. And Sean has drawn that line with such grace and strength. And I think that story shows when you become the adult, look, you get to decide, you know, you are no, you, you get to decide if you want to have that problematic father in your life. And in what respect you are no longer a dog on a leash being led through life by a parent of whatever well-meaning or, or not, you are your own individual. And boy, does Sean's story illustrate that point. And you yeah. said to him, it's your turn. I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, so as we as we sort of round out this conversation, uh, Julia, is there anything that you'd like to sort of leave our listeners with? Sure. To any listener listening who's felt something, be curious about what came up for you as Matthew, Richard and I spoke. Whatever arose in your body and your mind, 
in your spirit, that's a clue from you to you that something we said matters. So take that forward. I will add, I am rooting for all of us to make it. I um, deeply believe in the power of each individual, uh, almost regardless of initial circumstance. Although I realize some people start out life in really dire straits. Mm. I do believe we have the right and the ability to make our way. And my job is to just try to help. So that's what I'm about in all of my books and particularly your turn. That's that's beautiful. That that contribution to the co-creative experience and excitement. And uh, and I, I I noticed you just took a little bit of delight at something I said, and I took a bit of delight at, as well. I just want to sort of say it again. It it it's the breath, uh, the individual's breath blowing on the forest of possibility, uh, and that is the rattle and shake that makes all our work uh, worthwhile. Um, you, I'm very happy for people to tell me, the, you know, how brilliant you know, Matt and I are and with our book, but how brilliant are you because oh. of, of what we've said and, and where it takes you and, and your stories? Uh, and uh, I, feel, I feel like I'm, I feel like I can take, I can become an adult now. <laughs> I think you can, Richard. It's up to you. It's up to you, right? Yes. Yes, you are. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. What a delightful conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your listeners. Thank you so much, Julie. Take care now. Yeah, okay. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Bye. Oh, Matt. I that, that was great. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, she said more I, I, stuff. <laughs> I said to her, you know, there's got to be more uh, law graduates uh, just like you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's a real example. It's your engagement, your ability mm, to utilise yeah. the knowledge you've got to engage with the human being. Yeah. That's the fundamental framework. Now, certainly, I'm sure if Julie were working with somebody and it moved down the psychotherapeutic line, and yep. it started to get to a point where there was a need for something specific. She'd just, you know, refer on it. She'd maybe refer it to us. Yep. But the wisdom of the humanistic connection, this humanistic framework that we've been in for the last hundred years, she really expresses it. Loved it. Absolutely. So just a reminder, so her book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And, uh, you know, just just highly recommend this for parents and people who are trying to work out how to be an adult. It certainly has taken me 50-something years to work that out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's a great book. That, uh, see, these sorts of books, and why we do these things for therapists, everybody, is these are books that you can refer to your, your clients, that you That's can right. give your clients to help them through, to give them the psychoeducation. You can't give them, you know, your attachment book, but you can give them these sorts of, uh, of books as we did uh, with some of the others. So that's why we bring these to you. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And uh, just if you do appreciate what we're doing here on the podcast, please jump across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Richard, it's been fun as always. It has been indeed. So we just have, what can we do? What's left? Say goodbye. <laughs> okay, we'll see you later and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.